Amen. We're going to take a moment now to dismiss our kids who are in the fourth grade and under. They're going to meet our adults here at the front and then head upstairs for what we call kids crew, time of worship designed especially for them as they make their way to the front and join with our leaders. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're working our way through the Bible currently, and we are preaching each week a text from the week's readings. And so this past week, we've been reading in the book of Acts, and that's where we are today. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 19. If you don't have some other form of devotion that you follow, some form of daily devotion or Bible reading, I would encourage you to join us as we read our way through the Bible. Even though we've been working on this all year long and our our desire for those who are doing this is to read through the Bible, you could just pick up where we are today and you could join with us as we read through the Bible and I really believe you'll be blessed by that. You can find a copy of our Bible reading plan on our website. You can go to fbcchickasha.org and there you will find uh, a place where, where we have the, the Bible reading plan uh, so that you might study the word, read the word with us. So this is a story of Paul in a city of Ephesus. As Paul encounters a group of people in the city of Ephesus. And uh, what, a, what an incredible passage of text this is. And we're going to see this morning how God moves in the life of the Ephesians. That's what we call them because they were people who lived in Ephesus, right? And, uh, and, and how from that great things took place. One of the events that takes place in the opening parts of this is we, we come to realize that there's a group of people who, who knew some about what it took to follow the Lord, but they didn't know everything because they didn't know that there was even a baptism and that they, they could receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And so they had heard news about this Jesus, and yet it wasn't until they, they heard fully about him and surrendered their lives to him that we see God transforms them. And I wonder today if there's anyone here. In fact, I, I suppose maybe there are many in our midst, even today, who are listening who you know about Jesus. You've heard about him. You've, if you've grown up in America, you've heard about this Jesus in some form or another. And yet I wonder, is your understanding of who Jesus is really informed by the scripture? Is, have you been pointed toward genuine, true faith in Christ that comes through trusting him, knowing him by faith? Well, that's what we are going to look at this morning as we study what happens here in the life of this Ephesian church and as we see how that then can, can help us in our own lives, that we would live in light of this genuine faith. So years ago, I was on staff at a church where I served as the youth pastor. We had a room in that church that was named Moroni Hall. And the room was named Moroni Hall because it was named after a man who was named Mickey Moroni. Mickey Moroni was a, uh, at one point in time a Secret Service agent. He worked for the Secret Service worked also uh, for the um, U.S. Department of Treasury at a certain point. And uh, Mickey was, by all accounts, a great guy. Now, I never knew him personally because Mickey was killed on April the 19th, 1995, in the Murrah bombing. He was in the Alfred P. Murrah building that day when it was 
uh, when it was uh, attacked and, and Mickey lost his life in the attack on the Murrah bombing that day. But uh, Mickey was a great guy who led the college ministry at Council Road Baptist Church where I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and he impacted many people for the gospel. One of Mickey's most famous Sunday school lessons was one day as he's teaching the college ministry, he brought in a stack of $100 bills, and he told the students that one of them was real and one of them was fake. And he says, if any of you can figure out which one of these $100 bills is the real one, I'll let you keep it. And so he laid them out, and of course they all tried to guess, and someone actually did, almost by, just by chance, pick the right $100 bill. But Mickey used that example to, to teach this lesson to them. He, he taught that working in the line of work that he did, that, that he was in a line of work where it was his job to determine the difference between real and counterfeit bills. And he said that the way that they would do that, the way that they would learn how to tell the difference between a real, a genuine, and a counterfeit bill is they would study all the details of U.S. currency, all the things about a genuine bill that made it real. The, the markings, the, the layout of all the different parts of the print, the paper, all of the things. And so rather than trying to learn everything that someone might use to counterfeit, they would be so familiar with the genuine thing that they could spot the fakes. And effectively what we have here is we have a group of people who in, in Ephesus who have heard some of the gospel, but they've not heard enough to have genuine faith. Paul comes to the city of Ephesus, and he begins to preach, and he begins to teach there, and he, he recognizes that something is off about, about this group of, of believers that he's speaking to, and so he begins to ask them some, some diagnostic questions, we might call them. He just begins to ask them about their faith, and through that, he determines that, that these people had heard about Jesus, but they had never fully yielded their lives to him. And so Paul preaches the gospel to them. They surrender their, their lives to Christ in faith, and we see this amazing transformation take place. I wonder today, as I've said already, if there's someone here today that maybe today is the day of genuine, real faith for you. Maybe today is the day of real conversion. You've heard about Jesus. You've known about Jesus. You've, you've, you've attended churches. Maybe you've made a decision. But if you've never truly surrendered your heart and your life to him in faith, then frankly, you have what you lack is what I, let's say it this way. You lack what the Bible would call genuine faith. Now, I don't say that in order to try to cast judgment on anyone other than just to point you to the truth. And what the, what the Word of God teaches and what the, the Scripture says is, is clearly necessary for genuine, saving faith. And much like we see the Spirit of God move in the hearts and lives of those in Acts chapter 18 that surrender their lives to Christ, my prayer uh, is that God would do the same thing here as we study in Acts 19 what God is doing in Ephesus. Let's read together. Acts 19, we're going to begin in the first verse. And it happened that while Paul, rather, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found 
some disciples. Let's pause for just a moment and let's unpack some of the background. Now, some of this you can read in the previous chapters if you've been reading along, but let me, I'll just kind of catch you up. I'll get you up to speed on what's taking place here. Paul is traveling throughout a, a, a region, an area that is referred to simply in the book of Acts as Asia. Now, in modern day times, this Asia where Paul is, is what we would call the modern day country of Turkey. It's the land bridge that connects the Middle East and Europe. And so this land bridge was a key location, a key trade route. So there were several inland trade routes along, along this, uh, this, this Asian highway that was a part of uh, Rome, the, the, the nation of Rome and the system of roads that they had built. There were also key ports along the way so that commerce and trade and things and people all the, could move. And Ephesus was a key city because it was a city that was located at the crossroads, at the nexus of both these key trade routes and a key port city. And so the city itself, Ephesus, was a, a, a strategic location. I want you to think of it this way, okay? Uh, it's, not a, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but think of it sort of along the lines of like a New York City or a Los Angeles, one of our key coastal cities that is a key city not only because of all the, the, the roads and the, and the routes that lead there over land, but also the access by water to this port. And so it's, it becomes an important city. In fact, so important was it that it was the capital of this region of Ephesus. And not only that, it became the, the home of the temple of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And so in the Roman pantheon of gods, Artemis, which was the Greek name for this goddess, was known uh, by a different name. Diana was the Roman name. But regardless of whether you were referring to the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon of gods, nonetheless, there was this magnificent temple in the city of Ephesus. So it was a key political city, a key city for trade, a key city for, uh, for military purposes, and also a key city for worship, for religious purposes. And so it's, it's no surprise that Paul identified the need to go to Ephesus because if they could have influence and expand the church, grow the church, reach people in the city of Ephesus, it could grow even beyond that. Their influence could spread. This could become a key base of operation for the life of the early church. So it's a strategic move on Paul's part. Now, not only is it strategic, but we read again in the previous chapter these letters by the Spirit of God, that God's hand was on him, the Spirit of God was leading him, guiding him. And so Paul arrives in Ephesus to preach the gospel, and there he found some disciples, some people who already had heard and already had believed. And you may say, well, how could there be disciples if Paul and others have never been to Ephesus? Well, clearly, obviously, others had, had, had preached Jesus, others had influenced this. But one of the reasons that this could have happened is because of the Pentecost itself. You go all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost, we see that there are people who are gathered from around the known world because all of this took place at the Feast of Pentecost. In fact, the name itself, Pentecost, is just, it's derived from the name of the Hebrew or the Jewish feast that would have taken place on that time. It was a feast of weeks. And the word Pentecost means 50 or 50 days. It took place 50 days after Passover, and so 50 days has passed in the first Pentecost since 
Passover took place, and then the Spirit of God moves. There are Jews who are gathered there in Jerusalem at the temple for the Feast of Pentecost, and they hear, miraculously, suddenly, this, this group of followers of Jesus emerge, and they begin to preach the gospel, and regardless of what language they spoke, people heard and they understood in their own language, and the Spirit of God moved, and many believed. We read in Acts chapter 2 that over 2,000 believed, in fact, on that day. Well, what did those 2,000 people do? They went home, and they returned to places like Ephesus, and there they began to follow this teaching of the apostles. But they needed some more instruction. They needed some more help understanding this message of Jesus. And so, so Paul and Barnabas begin to travel together, and they encourage believers, and they, and they try to make new believers, make new disciples through this missionary journeys that they, that they would go on. We see all of that happening in the book of Acts. At this point, Paul is here on a missionary journey in the city of Ephesus, and we read in verse 2, he says to this group of disciples that he encounters, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now this John's baptism, this would have been a baptism following the practice and the teaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist taught a baptism of repentance, which means that people were baptized by John, and that baptism itself was meant to be a symbol of their repentance, that they were turning over a new leaf, if you will. Now, that's an important, that's an important thing that we would turn over a new leaf, but the baptism that we observe isn't just about trying harder and trying to do better on my own. The baptism that we that we observe, that we even witnessed this morning with Abby and Hunter, the baptism that we practice is a baptism of submission, a baptism of confession, confessing our need for Jesus. We're not just saying, I'm going to try better to turn from my sin. We're saying, I can't do anything to turn from my sin on my own. I'm powerless. I need Jesus to come in my heart and my life and save me so that I would be forgiven and set free. It's a baptism of surrender. And so much like Jesus was buried in, and then rose again on the third day, in our baptism, we, we symbolically unite with Christ in a death like his, again, symbolically, and a resurrection like his, symbolically, as we go under and we come out of the water. Did you know that all of that is explained to us in the scripture? Romans chapter 6 is a great place to turn. You can go to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. When we baptize someone, we often say to them, then I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in new life. Even that language itself we borrow from the scripture in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. So our understanding comes from our faith in Jesus. And here, this group of Ephesian disciples say, we didn't even know that there was a baptism of the Spirit. We, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. And, and so Paul begins to press in, and he explains the gospel to them. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
Then, after all these things, we read in, the, in this next verse, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What an incredible thing it is here as Paul comes to Ephesus and he begins to preach the gospel and then through this group of people who believe, they begin to impact others around them as well. And so as I look at this passage of scripture, as we study this passage of scripture, there are four key things that I want us to see here that point us to understand genuine faith. Again, understanding that there's a difference between the real thing and a counterfeit, right? There's a difference between genuine faith and just some religious teaching and some understanding. If we're to live in light of genuine faith, four things. The first that we see here is the moment of genuine faith. The moment of genuine faith. Now, this is the moment at which this group of people hear and respond in faith to the gospel. And so, Paul, understanding, and we don't have all of the details of this story, but clearly Paul recognized that something was off about this group. Something maybe wasn't adding up with what they said they believed. And so he asked this simple question. He says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response says it all. No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so the fact that they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit means that they haven't truly turned to Jesus in faith. They haven't really responded to the teaching of the apostles, the witness of what God had done, and, and, and turned to Christ in genuine faith. They had, they had felt some, some sorrow, some guilt over their sin, and they were baptized because of their desire for repentance, their desire to be washed of their sin, and yet baptism itself won't save us. Baptism itself doesn't forgive it, our sins, not just the act of baptism. Now, baptism is a powerful thing, but I, we tell people all the time before they're baptized, we tell them that baptism doesn't save you from your sin. In fact, that's just, it's just Chickasha water. That's all that is. And, and you know as well as I do that sometimes Chickasha water is a little cleaner than it is at other times. Uh, even this morning, after we filled the baptistry this week, getting ready for this, and, and the water has been circulating for a few days, you can actually see on the bottom of the baptistry, you see some, some sediment that has settled in the water. That's Chickasha water for you, right? There's nothing, it's not magical water. We don't pray over it and give it a special blessing, and now it has this special potent power that, you know, it's just water. And you can get in that water, and you can go under, and you can come up, and you're wet, and if that's all that happens is you just get in the water and you go under and you come up, then you just got wet. But if you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and you confess him as Lord and Savior, and if in your heart you believe that he has saved you, then that simple act of going under and coming up again becomes this powerful testimony of the new life that we have in Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul explains to the group here in Ephesus. Hearing that, many of them responded in faith and surrendered their life to Jesus. Then we read this part about the Holy Spirit. And it says that Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them. Now we need to be careful that we don't read too much into that because again, first of all, this is first and foremost, this is descriptive of what's happening here and not prescriptive. 
we don't have, someone doesn't have to lay their hands on you and pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. And second of all, you receive the Holy Spirit at the very minute that you trust in faith in Jesus. And the scripture make that clear. I've preached on that before. We'll come back to it again at some point. It's a bit of a sidebar from this morning, but it's important that we understand that it's, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit because Paul laid his hands on them and prayed. That that's descriptive of, of what's taking place. They received the Holy Spirit because they trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, because they turned their lives to him as Lord and Savior and believed on the name of Jesus. And so they were saved by God and received his Holy Spirit. And as Paul laid his hands on them and prayed over them, then something incredible takes place. It's as if they sensed that God was moving, and, they, and, and, and not only did they sense it, but they began to act on it. It says that they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 of them in all. Again, this isn't what takes place for everyone who believes in Christ. This isn't descriptive of that moment. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus when I was six years old, and I trusted in Christ, and I received his Holy Spirit. I've never spoken in tongues and never prophesied in the manner that we see described here. In fact, in all of the Bible, this is the last instance of such a miraculous, charismatic sort of event that we see. Now, there's, there's disagreement amongst some believers in different faiths as to whether or not charismatic gifts have ceased, or whether they continue, and all of that. And, and, uh, and again, that's a bit of a sidebar. I will tell you this. This is my own personal belief on this, just because we're here, and you may be thinking, what's Michael think? What's the preacher believe? I believe that, that God can do anything, but I don't believe that the normative way that he works is through these kind of miraculous events now, because because he's got a church. He's got a body of people who are to be his witness. And in this day, there was just a fledgling church, a very small church. Now we are his witnesses. We heart his examples. We are those who are to take the gospel to people who don't believe. It doesn't mean that people can't speak in a prayer language or speak in tongues because Again, I'm not going to limit the power of God to do anything he chooses to do, and yet I don't think that's the normative way that the Holy Spirit moves today. It's my belief on that, okay? So now you know where I stand on that issue. Nonetheless, what we see here particularly, these 12 believe, and God does something incredible in their hearts and their lives. And so they begin to, they begin to share this with others, verse 8. And, and so all of this is taking place, but it comes back to this moment. There has to be a moment where they truly surrender their hearts and their lives to Jesus. I wonder today, has there ever been a moment where you have surrendered your life to Christ in faith? Has there ever been a moment when you have turned from your sin and turned to him as savior of your life? That moment of real faith, that moment made all the difference in the lives of these Ephesian believers and it still will make all the difference in our lives today when we turn to Jesus in faith and we experience his power at work. And so that's the moment of faith. Secondly, I think we see here the message of genuine faith. What is the message of genuine faith? Well, Paul explains to them about the Holy Spirit, which is to say he explains to them about Jesus because you can't understand everything that you need to know about the Holy Spirit unless you back up and you understand who Jesus is and you understand who God the Father is. And so Paul unpacks for them the gospel, the gospel, the message of Christ. You know that word gospel, we use that word a lot. What does that word even mean? The word gospel actually comes from an old English phrase that was Godspell, which is another way of saying good news. It's the good news. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. 
It's the good news about who Jesus is. I will often describe the gospel using this simple little turn of phrase, okay? Four points that, that I will use. You can make note of this. If you've been around, you've heard me share this before. But I believe we can, we can sort of succinctly share the gospel just by saying the gospel is the story of his position, first and foremost. It's a, it's a story of a holy God, a holy, just, blameless, righteous God who's the creator and the maker of all things. So his position. Secondly, my condition. It's the understanding that I am sinful and fallen and flawed and that before God, I stand guilty, condemned in my sin. We all do, every one of us. His provision is the third point, that God sent Jesus to this earth to live and die, lived a perfect, a sinless life, and he offered his life on the cross as payment for our sin. But not only that, they buried him, and on the third day, he was raised victoriously, he resurrected from the dead, thus proving his power over sin and death. He's now ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God, and, he, and he's coming again someday. We await his second coming And in the meantime, he's given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us by faith, to guide us, to lead us. Ephesians, the letter later written to the the same church that we're we're learning about here, the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our faith in Christ. And so his provision, God gave Jesus to, to pay the price, to conquer sin and death, and then finally my decision we must, each one of us, make a decision to follow Christ. doesn't matter if you were raised in church. That's not enough to save you. doesn't matter if your parents had strong faith. That won't save you. doesn't matter if you've walked an aisle and you've gotten wet. If you haven't truly surrendered your heart to Jesus in faith, then you've never really been saved. But the good news is that the moment we call on the name of the Lord, we are saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that's the gospel in a nutshell. His position, my condition. His provision, my decision. That we would know and follow Jesus by faith. It's the good news. And Paul unpacks that gospel here for the Ephesians so that they hear and they respond to this message of genuine faith. And now, after they respond in faith to the gospel, we see a movement breaks out, right? That God does something incredible, miraculous even, through the movement of his Holy Spirit. It's the movement of genuine faith. Because what happens is when we trust in Jesus, things change. When we surrender our lives to him, when you place your faith and your trust in Jesus and you receive his Holy Spirit, then God is now at work inside of you, transforming you, changing you from the inside out. It's the movement of genuine faith. In fact, if you've been taking notes and you've written down this word movement, I want, you to, I want you to pay close attention to the word itself. Because the word movement contains within it the words move me. And that's really what we're praying. That's really what we're seeking here is that God would move in me. And that's what takes place when we trust in Jesus by faith. God moves in our hearts. And so in a few minutes, we're going to respond as we sing a song, and in that moment, if God is stirring your heart and you're ready today to surrender your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you to come and that you would be willing to pray, God, move me. God, move in my heart by faith. God, move in my life. Let me experience your movement. And in the life of these early believers here in Ephesus, we see that the the obstacle to genuine faith 
was understanding. They didn't understand. They didn't know the full gospel. But once they heard the gospel, once they heard the message, they responded in obedience. And when God's power meets my obedience, a movement takes place. That was true then, and it's just as true now, that when the power of God meets my obedience, a movement happens. God moves us. He stirs us. He changes us. And so you might ask your question, yourself the question, what's the obstacle? Really, what's standing in the way from you experiencing a movement of God today? November the 19th, 2023, in our midst in this place. What is it that would stand in the way of you experiencing a movement of God? Well, there's a lot of other things we could, we could say, well, you know, it's, I don't have all the resources. I don't have all the education. I don't have all the, maybe it's my age. Maybe it's my station in life. Maybe it's how I'm busy. Maybe, and, and we could go on and we could, we could give a, a list of excuses. But the truth is, the thing that stands in the way for every one of us of experiencing a real movement of God is simple obedience. If we would obey what God has called us to, if we would obey what the Spirit of God is moving us to do, then His power is unlimited. It's not that God's power is limited somehow. It's that our obedience falls short of surrender. But when our obedience meets God's power, a movement takes place. May we pray and seek and experience a real movement of God as we're willing to pray, God, would you move me? God, would you move me? Move in my heart. The final thing that we see here in this passage in Acts 19 is the multiplication of real faith. So revival breaks out. Revival takes place here amongst this this group and, and we see that, that God is moving in a fresh way. People recognize his movement. They reorder and, and they respond. And, and as they respond in repentance to what God is doing, recognizing his call, then revival takes place in their hearts. And the simple product of that is that multiplication happens. Multiplication happens. So often, so often we pray, God, would you move? Pray, God, would you, God, would you, would you do something in our lives? But I want to encourage us to take it a step further and not just pray for God to add to our number, but that we would pray and seek for God to multiply. In fact, the mission of our church is that we love all people to faith in Christ and we multiply disciples. That's the mission of First Baptist Church, the stated mission, to love all people to faith in Jesus Christ and to multiply disciples. And we chose that word multiply intentionally because we don't want to just add to our numbers. We want to see a movement of God. Some years ago, I was speaking to a group of students and I was preaching from this passage in Acts chapter 19, speaking to a group of students. And, and I spoke to the youth pastors in the room and, and, and I, I did some simple math. And so I'll just share with you sort of this illustration that I've used before. I said to a group of youth pastors, I said, if youth pastors, if you would, if God laid it on your heart that, that there would be uh, this semester, maybe a young man and a young woman in your youth ministry 
and you, and you met with them, and you began to meet with them weekly, and you began to pour in them and teach them what it means to follow Christ. And for a semester, you poured into them. And then at the, at the semester break, you find two others, and you pour into them. If you do that for four years, in four years' time, you will have, you will have reached 16 students. Praise the Lord for that. But if you met with two students and you poured in them and you, and, you, and you taught them and then you taught them to go and do the same with someone else so that the next semester when you met with two more, they each found two and began to meet with two. And, and, and we began to multiply rather than just add. You see that? Then at the end of four years' time, there would be 256 rather than 16. It's the, it's the multiplication factor, and you can just go from there. You begin doubling the number from there to the point that it, it, it grows exponentially. And that's what takes place in the life of the Ephesians here in Acts chapter 19. How do we know that? Because in verse 10, we read that within two years' time, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You know, scholars tell us that during this time, there were probably somewhere around 250,000 that lived in the city of Ephesus. Now, that was a major metropolitan city in its day, around, around a quarter of a million people. Truth is, 250,000 people, that's a, that's a pretty big town or a pretty big, a good-sized city even today, for example. The, the population of all of Grady County is around 55,000. So that's roughly five times the population of our county just in this city alone. And we could break that math down a lot of other ways. But just suffice it to say, that's a lot of people. But it wasn't just in the city of Ephesus. In the entire region, in the entire province of Asia, everyone heard the gospel. Not everyone turned to faith in Christ. That's not what it says. But everyone heard the gospel. How was it? that all of these people, hundreds of thousands, heard the message of Christ, it was because this group that started with 12, we see in verse 7, this group of 12 gave their hearts to the Lord, and they submitted themselves to Him. They were sold out on fire. They had genuine faith, and it multiplied. I believe that's what God wants to do in our midst today that there would be a multiplying movement of his Holy Spirit in our midst even today. As we, as we preach the gospel, as we point people to Jesus, as we share our faith in Christ and call people to surrender their lives to him and repent, it's a multiplication of genuine faith because that's what real faith does. It grows. It reaches people. And so this morning, we want to pray that there would be a, a multiplication of faith in our midst, that there would be really a, a real movement of God born out of our midst as we turn to him in faith. In a moment, we're going to move into a time of response where we sing this song. The name of the song itself is Jesus Messiah. We sing in the chorus section of the song. We sing, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, which means God with us, the rescue for sinners, the ransom of heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. And today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus as Lord of all, and even as we sing, we would encourage you to come. Our staff will be here at the front. We would love to pray with you and counsel you through the decision to surrender your life to Christ. Maybe you've surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you've already taken that step, but God is speaking to you. He's stirring in your heart today because he's calling on you to share this gospel with someone else, that you would multiply the kingdom of God as you seek to share Christ with others. 
Would you be willing to respond in obedience to him? Remember, when the power of God meets my obedience, a movement happens. Are you ready to experience a movement of God in your heart and your life today? Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes? And as we pray together, we're going to ask God to move in our midst even now as we respond to him in faith this morning. Lord, speak to us, move in our hearts, move in our lives. God, would you start a a movement of genuine faith in our midst today as we respond in obedience to you? Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the chosen one. We believe you gave your life so that we might be forgiven and set free. And now as we look to you in faith, in genuine faith, would you move in our hearts and our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.